The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer, W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Those interested in the Israel trip need to sign up now. There's an... uh... I'm not sure how much it is. I think there's a $300 deposit, and that is what secures your place on the trip. So if you are interested in going, you need to uh, start getting serious about it at this point so we have some idea about those who are going to go on the trip. Also, the ladies' prayer luncheon this Saturday morning, 10 a.m., at the home of Claude and Pat Broussard. Uh, I think, is there a map available? Map available on the front, down front. Yesterday on October the 3rd, or uh, excuse me, yesterday on September 28th at 4 p.m., Mr. Wilson Pruitt, who is the brother-in-law of Thelma Kanigi, was promoted to be with the Lord. Services will be held Monday, October 3rd, at 1 p.m. at the Veterans Memorial Cemetery. Also, uh, Mr. John Jones, who many of you know, husband of Judy Jones, is now face-to-face with the Lord. He suffered a heart attack in Oklahoma City this morning on their return to Houston from Nebraska. Their son, Murray, has traveled to Oklahoma City to uh, bring her home this evening. There will also, uh, next week, There will be no Bible class on Thursday night. So those of you who are faithful Thursday night attendees, no Bible class on Thursday night. I will be speaking next week at the WHW uh, Conference on Expository Teaching and Preaching in Southern California. So that's an annual event, large conference. I'll be speaking seven hours a day. So that's always one of my more intense weeks. And David Dunn will be teaching here on Tuesday night. So Thursday night is the only cancellation. There will be class Sunday night, and there will be class on Tuesday night. The flower fades, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is in the light of your word that we see light. Your word informs us as to the nature of reality. And in the light of your truth, we understand reality and we conform our thinking to your thinking. Now, Father, as we study 
the vital truths that you unfold in Hebrews chapter 2. We pray that we can understand these things and see how they apply to our Christian life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now the subject in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10 down to the end of the chapter, is on the doctrine of sanctification. The passage is often misunderstood by numerous people to refer to salvation. And in one sense, that's true if you properly understand how the author is using the word salvation. We look at Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting for him, that is the Father, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain, that is, the pioneer of their salvation, mature through suffering or through adversity. The yellow on the slide emphasizes the corrected translation. He's the pioneer of our salvation, but is that phase one salvation that we talk about, justification salvation, that point at which the individual comes to understand the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world, including every one of our sins, and by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone we have salvation. Now, often the word is used that way, and as I frequently point out in American uh, religious patois, we often think of salvation as only referring to justification salvation. We're used to the evangelist saying, Are you saved, brother? And we think of it only in that restricted sense. And it really puts blinders on people because the word group, based on the verb sozo in the New Testament, is not restricted to simply that initial stage where a person moves from death into life. But it often refers to the entire process from justification to spiritual growth to glorification. And in some places, it has that ultimate phase three glorification concept in mind. And that's what we've seen in this book. In verse 14 of chapter 1, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? And when soteria, the word for salvation, is connected there with inheritance, we know that it has a future in mind. It's looking forward to our time in heaven when we're absent from the body face to face with the Lord. Thus, in that immediate context, there's an application in the question that is pretty well known in, out of chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And often that is used to apply to phase 1, but in light of word usage in the context, it also is referring to our inheritance salvation, the completion of the spiritual growth process, phase 3 glorification. And so in light of those first two uses of the word soteria, when it refers here to making the pioneer of our soteria mature, it is talking about the fact that he is the pioneer of the entire spiritual life and the one who, who uh, completes the process, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his completion, he, uh, he pioneers and sets the precedent for us in the Christian life. And that is the subject. Now, I just want you to think with me a little bit 
as we get an overview of verses 10 down through 18. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. What's that talking about? Bringing many sons to glory. It's not talking about phase one salvation. That's talking about ending up in heaven, in glory. So it's talking about that whole process with the focus on the end product in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation mature through adversity. So the first verse in this paragraph, and the paragraph begins in verse 10, and it proceeds through verse 18. Verse 11 opens up the real subject of this section. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, it's a process, the focus on the process of sanctification, the spiritual life in phase two. Those who are being sanctified are all one. So verse 11 gives us the doctrinal focus of this paragraph. It's on the doctrine of the Christian life called sanctification. And then there's uh, quotes from the Old Testament. Two quotes. There's a quote in Isaiah, uh, I mean, quote in verse 12 from Psalm 22, uh, 22. And there's two quotes in verse, verse 13 from Isaiah 8:18 and Isaiah 8:19. Those quotes come in to substantiate the point that's being made in verses 10 and 11. And then in verse 14, he comes, the writer comes back to say, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, because we, the children, believers, human beings, are flesh and blood human being, he himself likewise, that is, in the same manner, shared in the same, that is, in being flesh and blood. So it's talking about the importance, the reason why, The eternal second person of the Trinity had to become incarnate and take on or add humanity to his eternal deity. So the rationale here emphasizes why the eternal second person of the Trinity had to become true humanity. That through death, that is what was accomplished on the cross, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those... Release has to do with uh, redemption. Release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Again, focusing on the fact that Christ's work was directed to the human race, not to angels. Therefore, conclusion, in all things he had to be made like his brethren. Again, the rationale for the hypostatic union. He had to be made like his brethren that he might be a what? A merciful and faithful high priest. And the high priest ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ relates to what aspect of your life? Phase one, justification. Phase two, experiential salvation or Christian growth. Or phase three, glorification. Phase two, sanctification, spiritual life. So you see the, the chapter, I mean, the, this section, verses 10 and 11, focus on the spiritual life. And they drive us in the direction of the conclusion in verses 17 and 18 that he had to be made like us so that he could be a faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now that's the work on the cross. 
but that's the foundation for, for all of his work. For in that, verse 18, he himself has suffered, that is, for in that he himself has gone through adversity, being tested, he is able to aid those who are tested. Now, what's the testing process? Phase one, phase two, or phase three? Phase two. So what we see here throughout this section is that verses 10 through 18 are driving on the principle of why Jesus Christ did what he did for the purpose of accomplishing something today in his high priestly ministry in relationship to maturing you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ so that he can bring you to glory. That's what this passage is talking about. The whole point here is not just about what Christ did on the cross in terms of phase one justification, but how that fits into where he's taking us in the future. So now that you understand the overall framework, we have to go back and we have to talk about this important doctrine of sanctification. And I started an introduction last well, it wasn't last Thursday night. We had to read a moment. So it was two weeks ago we went through the uh, doctrine, our introduction to sanctification, and I spent some time in the setup talking about the historical perspective in terms of the fact that every theological system, denomination, whatever you want to call it, has their own approach to sanctification. And I pointed out that there's basically only two schools. There's the replacement theology camp, which is everybody, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Presbyterian, uh, Keswick, Pentecostal, everybody, unless you're, uh, except for dispensationalists. And dispensationalists hold to a consistent distinction between Israel and the church so that the spiritual life, as it flows out from that understanding, the spiritual life is distinct for the church-age believer. It's Precedent is not in the Mosaic Law, but the precedent is in the spiritual life of Jesus Christ as our pioneer during the first advent. We don't look back to the Mosaic Law and say, well, the reason Christians are failures today is because we're not applying the law. See, that's, that's, I went through the passages in Galatians last time. And this was what the Galatian problem was. And it's amazing how many people don't understand this today. Paul, in the first two chapters of Galatians, focused on the, the gospel error that had infected the Galatian congregation because they listened to the Judaizers. Judaizers came along and said, well, it's okay to believe in uh, salvation by grace. That's a fine message that Paul gives. He's an erudite scholar and he knows, knows the law, but... He left something out. You still have to become circumcised if you want to experience all of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. You didn't get it all at salvation. You need a post-salvation shot uh, or infusion of spirituality. See, that's a two-step approach to the Christian life, which is like the charismatics have today. You didn't get it all at the, at the cross, brother. You need to have total salvation or full sanctification after you're saved. So that's what the charismatics teach. Or other groups come along and say, well, you got saved. Now you need to go back to the law and become moral. 
you know, apply the law so that you can grow. It's the same thing that was going on in Galatia. And so Paul confronts them with their error in verse 3 of chapter 3, and he says, Are you such a moron, moros in the Greek, are you such a fool, having begun in the Spirit, that is, at salvation you were saved by means of the Holy Spirit who regenerates the washing of regeneration renewal by the Holy Spirit, Titus 3, 5, are you now in your post-salvation life being made perfect, that is the Greek verb teleao, being brought to maturity by means of the flesh? And the flesh is also a synonym for the sin nature. In other words, in terms of your unaided human ability, are you now trying to reach spiritual maturity through the works of the law? And having said that in verse 3 of chapter 3, I pointed out that there were three key words in that verse. Spirit, teleao, or being made complete or perfect, and flesh. We don't see those three words show up again in the same verse until Galatians 5.16. Everything that Paul says from Galatians 3.3 to 5.16 is to build his doctrinal case. He goes back to the Old Testament. He talks about the Abrahamic covenant, and he builds his case point by point so that he can finally come to his application in 5.16 that we are to walk by means of the Spirit and we will not bring to completion the lust of the flesh. And I finished up the last time talking about how, it's, how frustrated I get sometimes with these English translations because they take key words and they don't translate them the same way every time they're used. Sometimes you can't or sometimes you shouldn't. But in a passage like this, you must because it picks up those threads of Paul's thought that he's tying together when he gets to Galatians 5.16. And so Galatians 5.16 is the benchmark passage for the unique role of God the Holy Spirit in the life of the church-age believer. Walk by means of the Spirit, and you shall not, ume, double negative in the Greek, plus a, an aorist active subjunctive, or, yeah, aorist active subjunctive verb in the, in the Greek indicating the impossibility of bringing to completion the lust of the flesh. And so after that, he sets up the whole uh, warfare between the flesh versus the spirit. It's one or the other. And this is the verse, folks. This is the verse that tells you that spirituality, walking by the spirit, is mutually exclusive to walking by the flesh. You can't do something with mixed motives and be partially filled with the spirit and partially sinful. It's one or the other. That ume plus the subjunctive mood verb nails that according to the grammar of the passage. So this sets up that distinction. And this has come out in the history of, of our understanding of Scripture and understanding of sanct uh, uh, specifically sanctification within dispensationalism as a distinctive in dispensational thought because over the development of our understanding of doctrine in the church age, by the late 18th, 18th century and early 19th century, people began to, theologians began to realize that there was a distinction between God's plan for Israel and the church. And I pointed out how this has really come to us in terms of our heritage through people like John Nelson Darby, who was fuzzy in places on this, but he's pointed in the right direction. Uh, C.I. Schofield, who was the editor of the uh, Schofield Reference Bible, uh, his student, uh, 
Lewisbury Chafer, and that's how it's been developed. And I was doing some reading this last week, and I ran across a little book that um, I think Jim Myers picked this up for me at a used bookstore a couple of years ago up in uh, Michigan called Plain Papers on the Holy Spirit by C.I. Schofield. And not everything in here is as as tight as we would like it to be, but that's okay. They're gradually coming to an understanding of things. And as I read through this, I was interested to see how clear he was on some things and how he lays his, his arrangement out very much the way that Dr. Chafer laid it out. And so you can see that influence. But Chafer developed it a little more and systematized it a little more. And then you read Walvert, Dr. Walvert, on his book on the Holy Spirit, his book on, uh, or his article on sanctification, the dispensational Augustinian view of sanctification. And you see how, as time went by, each man got a little more focused on his understanding of these things. But in, this, in his last chapter in this book, uh, Schofield titled it, The Filling with the Holy Ghost. Remember that terminology? Good old King James terminology. The filling with the Holy Ghost is indispensable. And he says, at the beginning he says, uh, Much of the speaking about the filling with the Holy Spirit implies that such filling is desirable indeed, but not indispensable. It is treated as one of the spiritual luxuries of the Christian life, and it's, that's true even today. A minister said to the writer, quote, I am going to look into that subject one of these days. He seemed utterly oblivious to the sorrowful fact that so long as he was not filled with the Spirit, no act of his service could be with power, and that because of that lack. And that because of that lack, his very sermon might work injury to his hearers. And he just has a couple of points he develops. The first point that he emphasizes is that no Christian should be willing to perform the slightest act in the service of Christ until he is definitely filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he writes on that for three or four pages. And then in his second point he says, no Christian can possibly live a right Christian life who is not filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he develops a few things on that, and in his concluding remarks, he says one final, but in the light of much which is said and written, necessary word as to the ground of the Christian's assurance of the filling. Much is said most harmfully, as the writer believes, concerning consciousness. That is, consciousness of the uh, filling of the Holy Spirit. The harm done by that word lies in identifying it with feeling. So you just thought emotions cropped up just in recent decades. So he goes after those who want to uh, identify the filling of the Spirit on the basis of emotion. And it says, It seems to be supposed that the Christian who definitely and continuously yields himself and his members and who has really been filled with the Spirit will know it by feeling holy or powerful. Of course, he goes on to show why that's not correct. But I just thought that you would be interested in light of my comments the last time to hear a voice from our historical past to give us a little insight as to how that, these things have been handled. They, 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 our understanding of the spiritual life didn't just pop up uh, in the last 50 years. It was held by Chafer, 
held by Schofield, held by others. In fact, several years ago, and I got in a discussion with someone whose name I won't mention, a pastor who should know better, and he said, well, you know, that whole concept of confession of sin and the filling of the Holy Spirit was just developed uh, within the last 50 years. And I had just been given a book by Arno C. Gabeline, who was a well-known dispensationalist at the early part of the 20th century, contemporary of Chaffers back in the teens and the 20s, on uh, his book, a little commentary he wrote, not much bigger than this book, on the Holy Spirit in the epistles. And under Ephesians 5.18, he wrote that the filling of the Holy Spirit was uh, he talked about the fact that it could be lost when you sinned and it had to be recovered when you confessed sin. And unless the believer were living his life according to the filling of the Holy Spirit, then all of his works were wood, hay, and straw. And this book was written about 1918. So the, I, I quoted the whole page to uh, this particular pastor, and I said, I'm so sick and tired of you and your two or three friends who keep trying to say that this teaching is relatively new and uh, your own historical ignorance is showing through. Quit trying to invent theology and get back to what the Bible says. And that's a problem you got to, uh, today is people are just theologically and historically ignorant. And this was from a man who had even gone to seminary. But... These things are not always understood by seminary professors today, and they're not taught well. So it's a constant battle to protect the truth. So we look at our passage here, and it's talking about the role of Christ as our pioneer in our sanctification. And that pioneer work that he that he'd performed was laid out during the first advent so that it would prepare him to be able to function as our high priest because he has gone through every category of testing that we go through to prepare him for that. So all of this is integrated together. Now, what I want to do is go back and just give a little uh, survey of, of uh, sanctification before we get into a detailed exegesis of the passage. But we'll, we'll look at a couple of details I want to highlight in verses 10 and 11 first. The word translated in the New King James, captain, and some places it's translated author of our salvation, is the Greek word archegos, from the Greek arche, meaning to rule, and the verb ago, meaning to lead. And when you join these two together, it came to mean someone who was an originator, a founder, a leader, a chief, the chief person, the first person, but perhaps the best understanding for us is this idea that he is our pioneer in that he sets the standard, the precedent. He is the one who blazes the trail. You could also translate it, he is our trailblazer, for he is the one who laid the, the track for the spiritual life that we have today. It's the same verbiage is used over in Hebrews 12:2, a verse familiar to all of us. Looking unto Jesus, occupation with Christ, focusing on Him. Looking unto Jesus, the author, same word, archegos, pioneer and finisher of our faith. Now that word translated finisher is a form of the verb teleao. 
See how these things fit together. It is so important. It's sort of like those old songs we used to see on the cartoons when we were little kids, and you'd have the little bouncing ball, follow the bouncing ball. And the bouncing ball hits on that word teleao, and it is important. It's not perfect, which is how the translators of the King James translated it and set a precedent for all subsequent translations to translate it perfect. It has to do with mature or complete. He is the pioneer and the completer of our doctrine. This was part of his role in the first advent. Now, we're told in verse 10 that he was made mature through suffering. Now, sometimes folks have a funny idea of what suffering is, and uh, they get a subjective tone to it. The, and the word here, pathema, really has more the idea of adversity. You're going through some sort of external set of negative circumstances or circumstances that test the metal of your soul, your spiritual life. And so I prefer to translate this that uh, in bringing many sons to glory to make the pioneer of their salvation mature through adversity. So Jesus, in, in hypostatic union, as true humanity, sinless humanity, had to go through a process where he went through category after category of adversity in order to blaze the trail on spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. That's the point of verse 10. For a purpose, and that is why we have to understand that participle there, bringing. It is a, an anarthrous adverbial participle, and it should be translated, in order to bring many sons to glory. This explains the purpose of his non-soteriological suffering in the first advent. And by that I mean the suffering he went through living in a fallen world with a bunch of rotten sinners around him, uh, going through the adversity of living in a fallen world. I am not talking about the suffering he went through on the cross related to paying the penalty for our sins. We're talking about the adversity he went through as part of his spiritual life during the first advent. The reason I bring that out, it doesn't matter to most of you here, but in some theological circles, all the adversity that Jesus went through is soteriological, not just what went on at the cross. And that's just plain false. It is only what went on at the cross that has a soteriological effect what he, the adversity he faced in his ongoing day-to-day Christian or spiritual life is related to uh, his pioneering work for, of our spiritual life. This is indicated in 1 Peter 4:13, which reads, "To the degree that you, that is, as a believer, share the adversity of Christ." See, when we go through the adversity in the same way he did then we, and we handle it with the problem-solving devices, we handle it with doctrine, then we advance in, in our spiritual life and mature just as he did. So in 1 Peter 4.13, Peter says, To the degree that you share this adversity of Christ, keep on rejoicing, sharing the inner happiness of Christ, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. 
Notice how all of this drives us to a future point in terms of the return of Christ and future glory. Then we read in verse 11, Hebrews 2.11, For both he who sanctifies, that is God the Father, and those who are being sanctified, that is believers in the church age, are all of one. Excuse me, I misread that. For both he who sanctifies, that is Jesus Christ, not the Father, Jesus Christ, and those who are being sanctified, that is believers, are all of one, indicating that we all partake of the same flesh. We are both human. And in his true humanity, he had to go through a sanctifying process. Now, isn't that interesting? Because we tend to think of sanctification in relationship to sin. But in the spiritual life of our Lord, there was no sin. But he still had to be sanctified. Adam still had to be sanctified because Adam, even though Adam was not was sinless before the fall, he still had to go through that sanctification process. So... Let's start putting all of this together. A little overview on sanctification. First point, sanctification is a term for the spiritual life or spiritual growth of the believer. That's how we're using it, and we would call it experiential sanctification. Actually, sanctification is used of all three stages of the Christian life. Phase one, Positional sanctification, phase two, experiential sanctification, and phase three, glorification sanctification or ultimate sanctification. But in most terminology, when you pick up a book on sanctification, it's really focusing on that middle term, phase two, the Christian life, spiritual growth, or experiential sanctification. Now, you say that people sit around they say okay i understand that well most people don't but at least you've heard the term that's amazing today i keep bringing little tales to you from my morning class on thursday morning when i'm teaching at the college of biblical studies and this morning we were in the second half of genesis and as we began our lecture and i got to genesis 15:6 talking about uh, abraham being justified by faith I asked the class, I said, how many of you are familiar with the term justification by faith? There were no hands. I said, well, how many of you have ever heard the term imputation? No hands. So I decided to have a preacher's moment and encourage them that if they had never, they were going to a church and their pastor never talked about justification by faith, how did they even know they were saved? Justification by faith being the foundation doctrine to the whole concept of salvation. And if they didn't understand imputation, they they just couldn't understand anything related to blessing or anything else. And so that really gave them something to think about. I challenged them that they needed to go to a church where at least somebody taught the Word a little bit. They had never heard this. Of course, each week I'm bringing you these stories about how they never hear any, what I would consider to be basic terminology, biblical terminology. Let's say if you're using the Living Bible And if you're using the message or if you're using the cotton patch gospel or one of these other modern uh, paraphrases or translations, then you won't ever find any of these words. And so you just become a very ignorant, maybe, believer. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Sanctification is a time-honored term used in the Scripture for the believer's spirit. spiritual position. 
So to understand it, we have to look at the basic original language terms. This is our second point, the original language terms. The Hebrew root verb. See, in each of these, you've got a root verb, and then you've got noun forms and adjectival forms, but you've got to go to the verb to get the root idea. The root word is kadash. That's an S-H, that, that phonetic S on the end with the little... Uh, uh, little V mark over the S means that it's an SH sound, kadash. And the basic dictionary Hebrew lexicon definition is to be hallowed, which is an antiquated English word, doesn't mean much. Holy, which again is an antiquated English word that has little meaning today. Sanctified, then we get into a little more of a sense of this word to consecrate, sanctify, prepare, or to dedicate. Now, I want you to think about that just in terms of the English words for a minute. The word holy, what does that conjure up in your head? What is a major nuance to the word holy that that you think of? Most of us think of holy as being morally correct, morally pure. Now, that is a being morally pure is really a very different idea from the idea of being dedicated or consecrated. So... What I want you to understand is the idea of moral purity is merely a secondary or tertiary nuance. It's not the core, let's get real academic, it's not the core semantic meaning of the word. It's not the main idea that, you, that, that the word has. In fact, there's one form, a, a feminine noun, and a masculine noun form of kadash that refers to the male and female prostitutes in the fertility worship of the Baals and the Asherim. Now, what do you think about that? Were they morally pure? I mean, they're temple prostitutes. There's nothing morally pure about them. What they are is dedicated to the service of their God. They are set apart to the service of their God. That's the core meaning for Kadash. And before you can talk about the New Testament word group, based on hagias, you have to realize that it's that hagias, hagiasune, and the other forms of that word that you find in the New Testament aren't based on Greek usage. I don't care what classical Greek said. I don't care what Koine Greek usage was. Because the writers of the New Testament are coming at that word from a Jewish Hebrew Old Testament background. So it doesn't matter how it was used in 5th century B.C. Athens. It doesn't matter how it was used in, in Attic Greek or, or Boeotian Greek or any of those other languages because they're using it on the basis of a Hebrew background. So that's why you have to spend time understanding this word. This is why when I was a student at Dallas Seminary majoring in Hebrew, when we got into second-year Hebrew and had, to, had our very first word study assignment, the first word they assigned was kadash. So it would stick with you for, t- for time so you would understand these things. The basic meaning of kadash is to be set apart for the service of God. Now, the first, one of the first places where this word is used in the Old Testament is in Exodus 3, verse 5. God is speaking to Moses. Moses is going to the burning bush, and God says, don't come near to this place, take your sandals off your feet, 
For the place where you stand is holy ground. Now let's do a little word substitution. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is morally pure ground. Does that make sense? No. Ground can't be morally pure. Then you get over later on in the Exodus and you get into the uh, consecration of the temple furniture, the, the bowls and the tables and everything else. Well, bowls and tables and curtains can't be morally pure. They can't be morally impure. They are morally neutral. So this is just to give you an, a better way of understanding and explaining the fact that holiness has to do with being dedicated to the service of God, Some, an area, a land, a, a vessel, a person who is identified as being uh, primarily for the use of God. That's the root idea in the Hebrew. Uh, Exodus 12:16 is another use of the word holy related to the holy calling out or assembly of the people. It, they're called out for the purpose of serving God. It doesn't have to do with morally pure. That's merely a secondary idea that gets added on in certain contexts due to the context. Now you get into the New Testament. And the New Testament word group is based on the, the noun uh, hagias. And the verb form is hagiazo. H-A-G-I-A-Z-O. This, word used, this verb is used 28 times in the New Testament, and it sometimes describes things. Again, it's the same idea, that things that are set aside for ritual purposes, for the service of God. So it has that idea of consecration. That's what consecration means. It means to be set apart to the service of God. Uh, it's translated sanctify, to treat as holy, uh, but the main idea is being set apart to the service of God. Another Greek form uh, of, the, of the word is the noun hagiasmos. Hagiasmos, used ten times in the New Testament. It refers to uh, the quality of being set apart, holiness, sanctification. It's used for the process, it's used for the position, and it's used for the result. That is the state of being set apart to God. In fact, the Low Nida Semantic Dictionary, which I usually don't recommend, uh, nails the definition to dedicate to the service of and to loyalty to deity. That's it. It's not being morally pure. It's being set apart to the service of God. Hagia Sune. That Sune ending indicates a quality or attribute. Thus, it refers to someone who possesses the attribute of holiness or being set apart to the service of God. Uh, Romans 1.4 shows that this state is in contrast to a life based on the flesh. That just gives us an understanding of what we're talking about. When you talk about sanctification, you're talking about being set apart to the service of God. This is a very positive concept. Notice it's not talking about getting rid of sin in your life. Not that you can go sin with impunity. This isn't licentiousness. The focus is rather positive, not negative. It's not going around saying you've got to stop this and stop that and don't do this and don't do this. The focus, rather, is positive, being set apart to the service of God. So point number three, sanctification in terms of phase two, exper experiential sanctification or the Christian life is about learning to serve God. It's about learning to serve God. 
And we could expand that to say, based on the fact that being positionally sanctified at salvation, we are positionally set apart to serve God at the instant of salvation. So the Christian life then is learning to unpack all of the wonderful spiritual life assets and blessings that God gave us at salvation so that we can learn to serve Him more and more consistently as we grow and mature in our understanding of the Word. So sanctification is about learning to serve God. Now, point number four. Going back to something I mentioned earlier, that is that neither Adam in the garden nor Jesus Christ in hypostatic union were sinners. Yet they still had to learn to be set apart to God. They had to learn to serve God. It, it's When Jesus summarized the Mosaic Law, He said that you need to learn to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's what it means to serve God, putting Him first, learning to obey Him. That's how do you know that you love God. If you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. That's said about seven or eight times in Deuteronomy. Jesus picks up on that same theme in the New Testament. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's repeated again in 1 John. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. How do you know if you love the Lord? You keep his commandments. So it is talking about serving God in our Christian life and Christian growth. That's what sanctification is all about. Now, because... Adam had to learn this in the garden when he didn't have to worry about that nasty old sin nature. And Jesus had to learn how to serve God, learn to love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength in his humanity. We understand a dimension of the sanctification that is very positive and is not necessarily related to, being a, to, to, to dealing with the sin nature. Our problem is we're so affected in every area of our being by that nasty old sin nature that we have a hard time understanding this apart from that struggle with sin. But the focus is more positive than it is negative. So sanctification primarily looks at serving God with a whole heart and only secondarily in terms of dealing with the sin nature. So that leads to our fifth point. Sanctification is primarily a positive process. The Scripture looks at it from that positive vantage point of learning to serve God, not a negative process of, of uh, stamping out the sin in your life. And the reason it looks that way is the more we get focused on who God is and the more you get focused on where you're headed, the more the sin that easily besets us falls by the wayside. See, that's what Hebrews, Hebrews 12 is going to say. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance a race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. See, if you're looking unto Jesus, if your focus is on the Lord, you've got occupation with Christ, then our attention is on where we're going and not on the sin that encumbers us. And so the result is, rather than going around like the legalists do and trying to put out all the little sin fires in our life, we're focusing on spiritual growth and spiritual advance. And over time, what you discover is that the sins that easily beset you begin to be less and less of issues if you're walking by means of the Spirit. Romans 6 is a classic 
core passage in understanding spiritual life, actually Romans 6 through 8, which is why I did a study several years ago, a pretty basic study on the spiritual life, uh, just looking at these three chapters in Romans. And Romans 6 starts off talking about the fact that uh, we're all baptized into Christ Jesus, identified into Christ, we're identified into his death, so that, verse 4, we should walk in newness of life. So the foundation for understanding the spiritual life, the foundation is that baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. It identifies us with Christ. That's positional truth. That's the term that we use. We're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now that has a consequence. The consequence is that we'll walk in newness of life. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the foundation, and that's positional sanctification. The result of that, Paul says in verse 6, is that our old man, that is the sin nature, is crucified with him, that the body of sin, that is our sinful activities, might be done away with in the course of spiritual growth, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And in verse 7 he says, For he who died has been freed from sin. That is, freed from enslavement to the sin nature. Therefore, we're not to continue to live in sin because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him, and sin no longer has dominion over us. And then you get down to verse 11, and the focus is on what we have in Christ. Likewise, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. And then in the development of his thought, starting in verse 15, he emphasizes the fact that because we've been freed from sin, we're no longer slaves to sin, but we are now slaves to righteousness. What's another word for slave? Being a servant. Sanctification is learning to serve God with a whole heart. So it is learning what Christ did for us at the cross and applying those principles to our day-to-day life, to the day-to-day adversity, so that in the same way that he applied doctrine to his adversity, we apply doctrine to our adversity, and in the process we are matured and brought to completion. So that the goal, there is a goal to the process, and that's identified in Hebrews 2.10 as bringing many sons to glory. We are saved for a purpose, Ephesians 2.10. We often talk about Ephesians 2.8.9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we stop there. But verse 10 says that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. It doesn't stop with getting eternal life. Eternal life and our new life in Christ is only the starting point. And the starting point is to prepare us to enter glory. And that comes only by following the Lord Jesus Christ in his pioneering work, his precedent-setting work in the spiritual life. So we're headed somewhere. Now point number seven. Now, to accomplish the overall plan, God the Father had to mature the pioneer of our salvation through adversity. So there is a role to adversity which is necessary to give us those tests 
to see if we're going to serve God or ourselves, to see if we're going to apply Scripture or not, to see if we're going to apply doctrine or not. It's not to see if we're going to sin or not. It's to see if we're going to trust God. You put the focus on the positive side, not the negative. So so the Father had to mature our Lord through adversity. Now, if the Lord who was sinless had to be matured through adversity, why do you think you're going to get away from it? How do you think you're going to get out from under this adversity thing? And life's just going to go by very smooth. There's going to be adversity with people. There's going to be adversity at work. There's going to be adversity at home. There's going to be adversity just living in the world system financially. There's going to be weather disasters, which we've been witnessing a lot of lately. There's going to be many other problems. It's just one problem after another, it seems. And sometimes it just seems they just pile up one on top of the other. But they're all designed by God to bring us to maturity. Hebrews 5.8 says, Though he was a son, reference to his deity, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things he suffered, by the adversity he went through. He learned obedience. So even in a sinless state in his humanity, our Lord Jesus Christ had to advance. See, there's something about the way God made us as human beings, as finite creatures, that we have to learn to be obedient. Hebrews 5.9 goes on to say, And having been perfected, what word do you think that is in the Greek? Teleao, you're going to get sick of that word. Having been matured, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That is, obeying him when he says, Believe in him and you will be saved. Eighth point. In our humanity, testing and adversity is necessary to demonstrate and to develop our service to God. It is part of our testimony in the angelic conflict. It's part of the way God made things. We just have to learn to love the battle, as my friend Jim Myers frequently reminds me. You have to learn to love the battle. He didn't say you have to love the battle. You have to learn to love the battle. That's that growth process. And it's a constant battle because not only do we have to battle with living in a fallen world, we have our own sin nature to deal with. Now, here are the three stages of salvation that we talk about. Phase one is justification. Phase two has to do with the spiritual life. And phase three is glorification. We talk about phase one as being freed from the penalty of sin. That is, we are spiritually dead, so we become spiritually alive at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. In phase two, we are learning to live freely, learning to live freed from the power of sin. And then in glorification, we're freed from the presence of sin. So the phase one is described as positional sanctification. By virtue of our position in Christ, we have everything we need to handle whatever the adversity is. Everything you need. God didn't leave something out because in his omniscience, he knew every single thing that you would go through. Every test, every problem that everyone would go through. So he gave us everything in the Word. Therefore, there's no testing taken you but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, 
and will not allow you to be tested beyond your ability. Now that ability is connected to the end clause in the verse. Beyond your ability uh, that, you may, uh, that you may be able to endure it. That's the last clause in the verse. Not to escape it in the sense of avoiding it, but so that you can endure in the midst of the trial. Positional sanctification emphasizes what we have in Christ. Progressive sanctification emphasizes its application in time as we grow, learning to serve God, learning to live a life that is set apart to His service. And then ultimate sanctification is when we're absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, and we have been brought to glory. And there is a... a, a a future destiny there. And he will not be ashamed to call us brethren. And that's what verses 12 and 13 of this chapter deal with. We'll come back focus on that uh, next time. So 1 Corinthians 6.11. There's a verse that talks about this positional aspect of sanctification. Paul says, And such were some of you, but you all, plural, second person plural, you all, including the murderers and the homosexuals and the effeminate and the adulterers and the liars and all the other sinners he mentions. But you were washed, but you were sanctified. Aorist, passive, second person, plural. All of them. Remember second person, plural? It's all y'all. All y'all were sanctified. Every one of them. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our Lord. Now, in that last phrase, he ties this sanctification that he's talking about to justification. So there's a positional sanctification that takes place at the instant of our justification. He uses it in a similar way in Hebrews 10.10 in terms of positional sanctification. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Salvation at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, there's a positional setting apart to the service of God. It's a perfect passive participle there. We have been sanctified, emphasizing a completed, an act that's completed in the past with results that go on in the present. And then Hebrews 10.14, For by one offering he has matured forever those who are being sanctified. This is the process of the Christian life. Now, little chart. We'll close with this chart. The green area is the area of spiritual growth. The dark gray area is the area of carnal death. The line going from bottom left to upper right is a process of our spiritual growth and advance. We're born spiritually. We go through spiritual adulthood to spiritual maturity. When we're spiritual babes, we spend a maximum amount of time in carnality and a small amount of time growing spiritually. But as we advance, we spend more time in fellowship, more time applying the Word, and less time in carnality. Until we reach spiritual maturity, when we're spending more time filled by means of the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, and less time in carnality. 
And the way we go through that is through testing, learning to apply the Word. This is uh, what the Lord says, Hebrews, uh, or what the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 2.18, For in that he himself has suffered, that is, has gone through adversity, being tested, he is able to aid those who are tested. We're not out there on our own. Hebrews th- uh, And then Hebrews chapter uh, 3, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tested as we are, yet without sin. So he is the pioneer of our testing. Now this gives us an overview of the spiritual life or the doctrine of sanctification. It's crucial. And the key element is the Word of God plus the Spirit of God. It's not just a matter of pulling yourself up by your own moral bootstraps. It's a matter of learning to walk by means of the Spirit. And we walk by means of the Spirit by studying the Word in fellowship with God, in partnership with the Holy Spirit, where He's teaching us the Word and producing spiritual growth within us. It's not an easy process. It's not a one-shot process. It is a process that we go through the length of our lives so that when we are finally taken to be with the Lord, absent from the body, face-to-face with the Lord, we hear Him say those desired words, well done, good and faithful servant. It's about being set apart to the service of God with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to be challenged with Your Word to come to a greater understanding of the spiritual life and the spiritual growth process. pray that You would help us to understand these things more fully, more completely, and keep our focus on You and on Your Word and on walking by means of the Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.